Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we've been told that one of the major points in this NATO summit was to develop a game plan to assist Ukraine in Russia's invasion. What do we believe the alliance's next step going to be? Well, we'll talk about that. To mask or not to mask? That is the question. And Unifor, Canada's largest private sector union, says its former president, Jerry Dias, is being accused of accepting money from a COVID test supplier. We'll talk about the implications of that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, let's talk about what's going on in Europe right now. You know, the troubles continue, as you might expect, for Ukraine uh, with more Russian advances and more casualties. Amid all this activity, uh, not too far away, of course, NATO uh, leaders are meeting in Brussels. And uh, they're talking about a number of different things right now. As a matter of fact, included uh, this investigation by the International Criminal Court. You may remember they've been charged, the Russians have been charged uh, with what they consider to be crimes of war. Uh, And uh, this is an ongoing investigation, of course. But uh, the United States has jumped up and says, we don't need the investigation. We already know the answer. Global's Reggie Cicchini has details. This statement from Anthony Blinken, America's top diplomat, points to the shelling of hospitals, civilian infrastructure, including an art house acting as a shelter, and an increase in indiscriminate bombing. Blinken says the U.S. government review of public and intelligence sources led it to an assessment that war crimes have been committed and that it will continue to track, gather, and share information with partners. The International Criminal Court has opened an investigation into war crimes, though Russia and Ukraine are not members of the ICC, meaning Moscow may not participate. The State Department does not name any individual in its statement, making it unclear if it's directed at Vladimir Putin, commanders, or soldiers. President Biden has already called Putin a war criminal, a comment that struck a nerve in Moscow, which threatened to cut ties with the U.S. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So what are the implications of this, and what are the implications of what the NATO leaders are talking about right now? We were told this meeting, one of the major points of this meeting anyway, uh, was to develop uh, an agenda, a game plan going forward to try to assist Ukraine. I want to get into that, too, with our next guest, Thomas Hughes, who is a postdoctoral fellow in the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University. Uh, Thomas, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us again. No, not at all. Thank you for having me again. It's great to speak to you. If, if they go down this road with this investigation, we you know, the U.S. has already passed their judgment on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, you know, they've committed war crimes. So what? I mean, you know, Putin's going to say, what are you going to do about it? I mean, is, is, is this really just an exercise in, in futility or is there some teeth to something like this? So I think it's it's difficult to talk about um, this as an exercise in futility. I, I think it's an interesting phrase to use, but the reality is uh, that I think we have to maintain at least a position uh, that these sorts of actions will be investigated and, if appropriate, will be prosecuted. We've seen the, the conversations about the rules-based international order, that the phrase is often bandied around without a huge amount of definition, which is slightly problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But nevertheless, we we have created a, a system um, within international relations where the vast majority of interaction is governed by rules. And in governing that system by rules, it creates a predictability of action. It ensures that everyone understands uh, the the appropriate patterns of of behavior. So to not investigate uh, what has been alleged to have occurred in in Ukraine would be a a dereliction, really, uh, and a move away from that. And I don't think there's any any country, uh, particularly in the West, who would be comfortable with that sort of approach. So uh, I think it, it has teeth perhaps in a slightly uh, different way than punishing the alleged perpetrators here. This is another another signal, uh, if you like, of um, universal condemnation of, of Russian action. What we see uh, following that investigation is going to be extremely interesting. I think the, the commentary that we just heard raised that really good point about, well, who is going to be held responsible for these actions? Is it going to be the troops on the ground, uh, senior commanders or or political leaders? And we've seen these conversations in other places as well. uh, And that's going to be a challenge. So I I don't think we should necessarily expect that uh, Vladimir Putin or names that we know are going to be hauled in front of any any court and and, and raked over the coals. Um, But I do think we we need to see this as a a bigger move, um, as a a sort of another signal uh, against Russia. 
And, and that's an interesting point. I'm glad you, you phrased it that way, Thomas, uh, because I think when people hear about this international court and charges of, of war crimes, uh, it probably conjures up images of the, the Nuremberg trials after World War II, uh, where the yeah. people who were deemed to be responsible were brought in front of a, a court and, uh, you know, many of them executed as a result of that. But that, that's not going to happen. If, if, in fact, they go down this, this road, I guess we're getting into the hypothetical here, mm-hmm. are sanctions a, a, a possible penalty here? I mean, this, it's not as if they're going to march into Moscow and say, Vladimir, come with us. <laughs> no, no, it's true. I mean, I, yes, I think I think that is a possibility. I think the sanctions, again, we have to acknowledge that that puts a, a really interesting spin on punishment uh, because it's then uh, who is doing the punishing um, becomes a much bigger question. And similarly, as we've seen with sanctions and the conversations that have come out of, of Europe this week, uh, that sanctions generally hurt two sides. And they part of their their value is that they sanction the, the target, they harm the target in that sense, but it's also denying something to the entity that is doing the sanctioning. So if the decision is to further sanction individuals, well, there are probably going to have to be individual governments and private companies, whether that's banks or otherwise, who are on board with that uh, as well and are willing and able to follow that through. Uh, and that is a challenge. Let's get into what's happening in Ukraine, because this mm-hmm. is very clearly a, a catalyst for the discussion that the NATO folks are having right now. NATO estimated between 7,000 to 15,000 mm-hmm. Russian troops have died in this conflict over the last four weeks in Ukraine, this invasion. I don't think there's any threat of, of you know, the Russians running out of soldiers. I mean, it's, it's a vast country, very populous mm-hmm. country. But it does speak to, to the to methodology, and, and I, I think it's, it's some of the material I've read over the last couple of days, Thomas, a lot of people are raising questions about the the aura that we seem to have placed around the Russian military, that they were this huge, you know, very, very dramatic and very effective force. Uh, not so much in this case. No, absolutely. I think you're, 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 you're spot on. I, I've been having similar thoughts uh, looking at this and, and wondering, particularly around the conversations that are coming up now, how, uh, increasing defense spending and the like, and, and one looks at the, the Russian military and thinks, well, where actually could you go from here? But I think there are a number of different routes that, that um, we can talk about in this, in this case, and they're all uh, extremely interesting. And I think part of that is just the um, approach to the conflict and the type of conflict that we've seen. But one of the things that I found very notable is that um, over the past few years, when I've been lucky enough to, to speak to uh, a lot of NATO, uh, senior NATO personnel, they've all talked about the uh, quality of Russian logistics. And, and one thing that Russia has been training for over the past um, five years has been uh, the, the, the movement of large numbers of troops and equipment. Um, from place to place, essentially. We've seen that in a lot of their military exercises. And from what we had seen, it looked like they were very, very effective, uh, that they had developed processes which were very good. And I mean, there's the, the classic quote about no plan surviving first con- contact with the enemy. And it does make one wonder whether that has also been the case here, that they had some very rigid ways of approaching conflict and they have not been able to adapt quickly enough and effectively enough uh, to the reality of the opposition that they're that they're facing i mean the the numbers we obviously we always have to be very very careful with um casualty numbers but they are extraordinary Um, and adding on to that as well when you think about um not just the numbers of those troops killed but how many have been injured uh to the extent particularly to the extent that they've had to be removed from the conflict environment if you take a basic estimate, again, it is a very basic estimate, but usually something like three to one in terms of a killed injured ratio. And that is a lot of troops. And you know, it's unlike sort of a, a game of risk. You know, you're not going to wear your military down until you've got zero people left. It's not going to work like that. There's a tipping point somewhere in there. I think exactly as you said, I, I don't think in terms of casualties, we're going to see that sort of tipping point reached. But it is a really salutary moment for, for the Russian military. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what they do in the aftermath of this war uh, to try and um, reconfigure themselves to to overcome the challenges that they've seen here. The other day on my program, uh, Thomas, I had uh, Brian J. Caramon. Brian, of course, is a long-time mm. White House correspondent with Salon.com. I, I, and, and we've had Brian on the show many times. But he wrote a piece. Uh, he spent about a week in Ukraine. He's over in Poland right now. But as he said, they're sitting there looking over, you know, he's having coffee with one of the other reporters. And he says, you know, he says the Russians can probably decimate and destroy and level this country, but they will never conquer Mm. it. Do you agree with that? 
That's a great quote. I, I think, yes, I think I do. I think I do. And one of the things that I have found particularly interesting in the last few days is uh, when you look at images from, from the center of Kiev and the like, we, we haven't seen the level of destruction there that we have in Mariupol, for example. Yeah. Uh, and that is obviously not for want of capability. Um, I think it, it, it's worth remembering that Russia could yet um, conduct further large-scale indiscriminate attacks on, on Ukrainian cities and cause f- even more damage than the particularly horrible damage that we've already seen. And uh, so I think that's we're not at an end stage uh, in this conflict yet. And I oh, think no. it's hugely important. I mean, you, you know as well as I do, there's a, there's a terrible tendency for attention to drift within news cycles at times. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. it's hugely important that we don't let that drift, um, that we do keep that focus on Ukraine. Because whilst I agree with the statement that Ukraine is not going to be conquered, they've created... The war has created a, a new sense of identity there, which is truly extraordinary. That is not going to last forever without further support um, when we're talking decades down the line. So I think it is going to be extremely important that we maintain um, that attention on Ukraine, and not just for the next weeks and months, but for the next few years uh, to, to work out how we can rebuild Ukraine and, and how we can uh, bring Ukraine into uh, the Western political sphere uh, if you like, uh, and re-encourage it to, to integrate with that economy and that society. Thomas, on that point, I just wanted to go a little deeper, if, you, if I could. Mm-hmm. We, we can talk about the efficacy of Russian soldiers and the, and the strategy mm-hmm. or lack thereof, I guess, with the, this invasion. And w- But we can't be dismissive of the fact that the Russians have a huge arsenal uh, of, yes. of nuclear weapons and, and very effective uh, destructive weapons at the same mm-hmm. time. Is there a concern here that the longer this drags on, that Putin's going to figure he's going to pull all his cards at the table here and, and ramp this up? I mean, you know, at the NATO meeting in, yesterday in Brussels, uh, they were talking about the threat of nuclear weapons, so limited nuclear weapons, whatever it's going to be. It's a nuclear weapon. Uh, <laughs> and thinking that Putin may be so frustrated, he figures, OK, let's ramp it up. Absolutely. I mean, it, it has to be considered. Um, it has to be thought about quite carefully. I, I think, again, we have to be careful not to um, get too far ahead of ourselves in this and assume that because he has them, he will use them, or even indeed to assume that simply because we're planning what to do if they are used, that we expect them to be used. But that said, I, I think the danger is there. My, my hope is that uh, Putin is... Um, walking this rather fine line between causing as much damage as possible uh, in order to win the political uh, side of the conflict and the military side of the conflict, but not too much uh, as to bring in NATO. And I think NATO has been very savvy in terms of not uh, acknowledging exactly what would occur if if Putin uh, used nuclear weapons, for example, because we know that uh, setting a red line like that creates the possibility of a, uh, of action occurring below that red line where you have to, again, sit there on the side and, and twiddle your thumbs. But, but I think in this case, uh, the use of some of those even more uh, appalling weapons, whether that's chemical weapons or, or nuclear weapons in particular, I think Putin would be really running the risk of, of NATO um, being obliged uh, really to, to engage in that conflict more directly. So the, the, the discussion around off-ramps is really important here, I think. And the phrase, again, has been bandied around. It's just the off-ramp is creating an opportunity for, for Putin to step away from this war uh, and step back from this conflict is going to be significant um, because that takes away that, that incentive to use those weapons uh, to, to kind of, and the, the, the last throws uh, to try and achieve what, whatever it wants to. But I think, again, if we see the use of those weapons, it, it really is a sign that, that Russia has completely flipped in what it was trying to do with this war. I mean, whether they convinced themselves it was true or, or not, there seemed to be this belief that they were going to walk into Ukraine and be seen by a significant proportion of the population as liberated, and that they would be accepted and they would take political control. Uh, however, if we start seeing nuclear weapons being used, I mean, that that's going to damage the, the the environment to an extraordinary extent and chemical weapons are going to have horrific horrific consequences for for civilians and at that point it really is an acknowledgement that it, it is about him completely subjugating and and, and conquering the country uh, so it would be a an interesting symbol of that that shift uh, and really a failure uh, on the on the russian part 
Absolutely. Thomas, we're just about out of time. So many more things I wanted to ask you about, but we'll have to save that for a future visit, I hope. Thank you so much for Absolutely. this today. really appreciate no it. Bye for now. Take care, Thomas. Thomas Hughes, a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for International Defense Policy over at Queen's University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. To mask or not to mask? Uh, that's the question a lot of people are asking these days. Uh, we know that, yeah, the mask mandate was lifted here in Ontario as of this past Monday. And uh, you are free. It's optional now, they say. It's not mandatory, but optional. And uh, it, it's interesting to see some of the feedback uh, from some of the healthcare professionals on this. Uh, experts say that the legacy and language around masks is going to be debated long after COVID-19 pandemic recedes. Professor Sarah Otto from the University of BC says not since the two-piece swimsuit was introduced 75 years ago has such a small piece of cloth produced such a polarized debate. I think the, the problem is that you you can't ethically do an experiment with people where you say, okay, you're, you're a randomly drawn person and you have to take the risk and you can't wear a mask and you're a person that um, gets a mask. So we, we just don't, if we think masks are important, we ask everybody to wear them. But that means that we don't get the type of experimental proof that some people want to see. So that I don't think it settles the debate by any way, shape, or form. But it's interesting. It's it's an individual choice right now, and uh, yet there are some people who are trying to influence this. Uh, Rob McIsaac, who is the CEO of Hamilton Health Sciences, which includes, of course, a number of uh, healthcare facilities in this area, is encouraging people to keep wearing masks for the next little while uh, because of some uh, well, some data that has come out recently from uh, Scarson forecasting that estimate that seventy percent of the predicted COVID hospitalizations between now and the end of May could be avoided. If residents got vaccinated, wear the masks and stay home when sick. In other words, following the COVID protocols. So which way are you going on this? I want to bring Dr. Jason Perfetto into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Perfetto is a family physician and chair of the clinical skills and also an assistant professor with McMaster University. Doctor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me back, Bill. Always a pleasure. Doctor, what are you hearing? Uh, what's the the... the the talk on the street these days as, as this goes on. I mean, my, I've, I've tried to do my own unscientific study. You know, when I go to the grocery store, I was at the pharmacy yesterday, a couple of other places. Uh, and I've seen the odd person without a mask. Most people still seem to want to do that. Are you surprised by that? Yeah. So I've seen mixed results as well in terms of observation of people wearing masks or not in, in situations where it's optional. Um, I think we have largely failed the public in what is some of the most mixed and confusing messaging that is really quite, you know, I don't want to use the word fear mongering all the time, but I think there's a very strong fear based undertone to the messaging. So I think in large, the vast majority of people I interact with do not wear a mask unless it would be, uh, you know, wise or helpful, especially to medically vulnerable individuals in high risk settings. But uh, there's definitely a mixed response. So why the, uh, I don't want to use the word trepidation, but I mean, are some people just, it's kind of like going into the swimming pool, but we're hanging on to the edge because we're not just quite sure just how this is going to go. If, if most of us continue to wear masks, is, is that going to, as, as the Scarson forecasting said, uh, reduce the number of new cases and reduce the, the pressure this might put on hospitals and ICUs? I was actually a bit disappointed to see such a powerful article in the newspaper rely on modeling, which has in the last two years has largely been inaccurate, which is not a criticism per se to any one person, but just an acknowledgement that modeling is, is not very accurate at the best of times, especially when it's relying on, on specific types of inputs, right? Um, I do not think that sort of modeling is going to be largely accurate. I think it reduces what is a very complex issue to so to say so many people are going to end up in the hospital but if you wear your mask 70 percent of those people will not end up in the hospital i think it it misses a lot of underlying nuance in what is a a complex sort of policy decision i think overall what we're probably going to see is a respiratory virus behave like a respiratory virus and spread even though these surgical masks, which many people use, are, are probably not nearly as effective as a lot of people think. Not zero, but not nearly as effective as a lot of people are promising them to be. 
Well, and the forecasting, by the way, also mentioned getting vaccinated and, and, not, and not just wearing the mask would make the difference, but vaccination in the mask. And there are probably still a number of people out there have done neither at, at, at this point anyway. Yeah, you, you know, the, the thing is, too, though, and again, so when we say um, vaccination, what do we mean? Do we mean dose one, two and or three in certain long term care facilities? There are people with four vaccines in Ontario yeah. anyway. And so there's a variety of what that means. Does it mean one, two, three or four? Is the evidence the same for each category and stratification? Probably not. If you have doses one and two, what is the effect now? The effect was very different on Delta versus Omicron. So what does that mean in March, April, or spring of 2022? Can we, be, can we still be so simplistic and reductionist in nature when we apply these sorts of principles? I don't think so. The other thing, Bill, is when we say masks or no masks, I, I, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm actually very surprised when we, we reduce that statement to what it is because, first of all, like if we really wanted to be strict about an airborne virus, we should have proper eye protection and sealed masks, which the vast majority of people are not using, which is, which is fine, but that, that, that's the truth. Surgical masks will probably not reduce the spread of an airborne virus any, to any substantial degree from what we've seen by a lot of the evidence. And then the other thing is that what is the compliance? How well are people wearing masks? When people are with family, do they wear masks? There's so many underlying levels that I just feel like are missed in these overall analyses and, and modeling. That's why I tend to be a little bit critical and still wish that we can remain balanced on the issue at large. Talk to me about the quality. That, that's something that's been become a very contentious issue. I'd say probably 90% of the people that are masking these days are either wearing or the black ones, you know, the, or the, 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 as you mentioned, the surgical type masks, you know, that are blue on one side and white on the other. But we're told they're not the most effective masks anyway, that the N95 are the ones we should be doing. But we didn't really get that direction from, from the medical experts at the beginning. And let's face it, these are a lot more expensive and a lot more accessible for a lot of people. Yeah. But are they effective? Yeah, so, so this is a controversy that's existed for some time. We know that COVID-19, probably without any discussion for sure at this point, is, is that it's an airborne respiratory virus. However, this is where the controversial evidence comes in. Most of the spread does seem to be by closer uh, in-person uh, droplet type spread from one person to another, as opposed to being just purely aerosolized in a larger room. And that's why, for example, outside, it's, this spread seems to be a lot less if, if you're not close to other people. So mm -hmm. that's why there's all this confusion. If we do accept and say that this is a purely airborne virus and that's how it's continually spreading, then you would need a sealed mask, but you can't stop at a sealed mask if you're going to commit to that. It, it would have to be proper eye protection as well, which is appropriate for high risk settings. And I think everyone agrees on that. I think, and Bill, you know, you're going to have to forgive me because I'm, I'm going to use a word that's become rather controversial in this whole pandemic. I think a lot of what people are doing is actually theatrical. So if we are going to be honest and we're going to put a, a, a surgical mask on, and it's going to be below our nose and we're walking around and it's on our chin. The truth of the matter is you might as well not wear anything at all. If we're going to say that this is an airborne virus and it spreads via aerosol, aerosolization and you're wearing a blue surgical mask, the truth is it's probably not going to prevent the spread. The other thing, though, is that we do see spread even with masks. So to what degree does the mask stop the spread? Again, a lot of that depends on the setting the, the location, the air quality, the filtration, et cetera. So I, I, I'm not sure if I'm clarifying, but there's, there's quite a few details to that piece of the conversation too. No, but I, listen, you make a very valid point here though, doctor. Uh, and, I, and I think part of the problem here, I'm not, I'm not suggesting we were misled, but an awful lot of people tend to, to, to live in absolutes. Because I hear this all the time, you know, it, well, you know, I, we all wore masks and, and one of us ended up with COVID. <laughs> Nothing is perfect. You know, you could wear the mask and wear the gloves and wear the glasses and you could still get COVID. Uh, just as I've heard people, and I'm sure you have too, doctor, that said, hey, I got vaccinated and I still tested positive. I thought you said the vaccinations work. Well, they do, but they're not 100 percent. No vaccination is for anything. But, you know, they, they'd use that to try to justify saying that then I should do nothing. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it flies in the face of logic, really, but that's the log they, they, their version of the logic anyway. I, I think we really have to have, I think, realistic expectations of what we're going to do here, whether it's masking or vaccinations. It, it prevents 
the worst case scenario in many cases, but it doesn't prevent us from being exposed and possibly, you know, testing positive. Absolutely. And as as Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Anakin Skywalker in, in that one uh, movie, he says, you know, true Jedi's never think in absolutes, right? And I'm playing fun of it, but it's actually accurate. So I yeah, really do not think, yeah. So absolute conclusions or extreme conclusions in one way or another, everyone should wear masks all time in-house versus no one should ever wear a mask again, never, ever. I don't think any of those positions are accurate nor helpful. I think what has to happen is we need to get to a point where And this is where our chief medical officer of health and even the local medical officers of of health have made statements about uh, not not mandatory, but recommended. And even with recommended, having a bit of a sense of your own risk assessment. So if you are going to be walking into, for example, a long term care facility with somebody that's quite vulnerable, and especially if, you know, like if there's there's a a seasonal virus going around, then a mask is actually a very, very reasonable thing to do and quite courteous. If you're going to be playing soccer outside and you're walking to a field with a blue mask on, I, I, I think the truth is you're not doing anything and, and it's just confusing more than anything. The other thing is too, Bill, if you've actually worn a sealed N95, you'll realize the tight fitting quality that it offers. And not every population is able to tolerate that in the same way. So it is actually a bit more difficult that, other doctors have disagreed with me on this, but it's more difficult for a child to do that than an adult. It's more difficult to do that for eight hours than 15 minutes. And we do have to appreciate the power of social cues verbally and what we see on someone's face. And these pieces of the puzzle have to come in to the equation that we use in terms of whether or not we should match. That's why In not thinking in absolutes, I think the change from mandate to recommendation was very, very appropriate. And now we're in a very interesting time where we're transitioning from one to the other. There's a phrase I saw yesterday as I was reading some material about this, Doctor. I wanted to get your comment on. Uh, We know that there's another variant out there, the the BA2, expected to become the dominant variant here in Ontario probably later this month. Uh, But they referred to it as stealth Omicron. Uh, We know what stealth means, and we know what Omicron certainly means. Does does that mean it's more deadly? That means it's it's more transmissible? What's what's the medical attitude towards this this variant right now and, and the impact it might have on us? I think so. it's an excellent question, and this is another confusing point for the public. And this, again, to go back to what I initially said, the mixed messaging and the confusion behind the messaging is doing more damage than good. So is it possible that BA2 will become the dominant strand? Absolutely, and perhaps that's what we're seeing now. Is it possible that wastewater data is suggesting that there is the, the start of another peak of uh, COVID? Absolutely. Do we need these specific parameters to tell us that everything needs to reverse and we have to go back to strict restrictions and lockdowns? Absolutely not. So this is where we need to have a better understanding of what outcomes matter most. Do I, am I interested if there's a lot of COVID in the community? No. I, uh, to, me that's, to me, that is very, that's a minimal issue overall. What I need to know is, What is it doing to people in terms of outcomes? What percentage of people are actually getting quite sick, hospitalized and in ICU? And even the hospital capacity argument is becoming weaker and weaker. The hospital capacity should be a health systems government issue that we, and when I say we, that the healthcare system needs to solve instead of suggesting that children should be wearing a mask in order to continue to keep the healthcare capacity at an optimal level. So what I would say is we need to get a better sense of what the outcomes are that we care about. And that's what the chief medical officer, Dr. Kieran Moore was referring to, hospitalizations and ICU rates. And then we can say this BA2 is a problem or not. But the language around is it becoming dominant, is it becoming prevalent, is a lot less interesting to me than actual important outcomes. Okay, and, and I'm glad we're having this conversation because we're touching on an awful lot of the points that are being bandied about on social media with people trying to substantiate their points of view or, or you know, dismiss some of the other people's points of view. But one of the arguments, that, that, and you and I have talked about this a number of different times over the last two years, I guess, do we need to be preventative or reactive to this? I mean, you know, when they say, hey, this this 
there's going to be a spike. We don't know how big it's going to be. And as you just mentioned, we don't know uh, the impact it's going to have on hospitalizations, ICUs. There's, there's a lot of speculation, and you've seen some of the projections as I have. But what I thought, what I took from this, this statement, from the, the Scarson uh, forecasting, was, what, look, at it, if we go back and at least follow the protocol for a little while, we can mitigate the impact it's going to have. Or do we wait until it gets bad and Dr. Moore has to come back on and say, hey, sorry, guys, you know, capacity restrictions again and masking because the numbers are getting out of control. Is there something we can be doing to make sure they don't get to that level? There's no way it's, there's going to be zero new cases. That's That's never going to happen. But can we mitigate that to the point where we don't have to go back into lockdowns and shutdowns and things of that nature? Yes. So what, what I would suggest is that prevention is a very, very powerful tool. An ounce of prevention is with a, worth a, gold, uh, a pound of cure. So trying to prevent and anticipate is extremely important. My criticism would be that prevention should not only include a perspective of, of COVID. It should include everything that happens as a result of the prevention. So what do I mean? Masking, lockdowns, restrictions, isolation are not benign measures that are put in place and need to be balanced with societal and let's say like the well-being of others. So let's get a bit more specific. We could close schools for the next 10 years and there would be very minimal transmission within a school environment. I would offer that that's probably a very, very dangerous and destructive thing to do. So how do we look at closing schools? Uh, it's probably not a good idea. We know we've learned so much about what it means to keep kids at home, to keep them on iPads all day and learning in an isolated environment. Okay, so how do we mitigate? Well, where do the masks come in? Where does social isolation come in? And how do these things look in terms of what we're trying to prevent? So again, I go back to the point, are we trying to prevent numbers from increasing because that might not be important. What we're trying to prevent is serious illness as a result of numbers. So I would say to any prediction or modeling, if you want to be credible, tell us accurately what's going to happen with hospitalizations, ICUs, and the danger to the health of people. And Bill, with all due respect, a lot of the modeling has been inaccurate, and that's why people have lost faith in it. But we should, and Dr. Fauci said this actually very, very early on, that we have to be careful with how much we rely on modeling because we are at the mercy of the limited inputs that go into it. I got about 30 seconds left, and I, boy, I wanted to spend more time on that. But great point there, doctor. We're not doing as much testing. So, you know, for people to hang their hat on the, on some of these projections right now is, is something that I think we need to be a little wary of because we don't know the numbers, neither do they. As a matter of fact, you and I have talked about, you know, here are the number of new cases today. Well, it's probably 10 times that number, but, you know, we don't report that. So it's out there, and clearly all those people aren't going to the hospital. So, you know, this is a matter of, as I think, as Dr. Moore said, we need to contain it. We're not going to eliminate it, but contain it. Yes. I, I would just offer, if there's tens of thousands of cases and hospitalizations and ICUs are going down, that is a very, very good sign. And that is something that we should be proud of. And to say that a lot of the things that we're doing now are probably reasonable measures. And I think that's, that's a good balance to hold. Doctor, it's always great to have you on the program. You, you cut through an awful lot of the rhetoric and, and, and shine some light on things that I think we need to talk about here. As always, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Dr. Jason Profetto, family physician. He's also the chair of clinical skills and assistant prof at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, Unifor says their former national president, Jerry Dias, accepted $50,000 from a supplier of COVID-19 rapid test kits and that he promoted to employers of Unifor members, several of whom purchased these test kits. A lot of heavy-duty stuff there. We all know the uh, the result of this. Of course, uh, Mr. Dias stepped down uh, and now has uh, checked himself into a uh, rehab clinic. But after an internal investigation, Unifor National Secretary Treasurer Atlanta Payne says he stands charged with violating the Code of Ethics and democratic practices of the Unifor Constitution. I'm not using that word, no, uh, but we have, as I mentioned, uh, 
sought outside counsel throughout this process to guide us to obviously getting an external investigator, et cetera, et cetera. And we will now, as a result of having this report, uh, continue to seek uh, legal advice. And that'll be our next steps. Well, let's talk about legal advice and uh, the perspective going forward on this. And uh, we're always pleased to have our next guest with us. Andrew Frugelli, of course, is a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Andrew, pleasure to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. Doing well, Bill. Thanks very much. Good. Good to be back. Good. Good to have you back with us, too. Maybe we should draw a line, if there is one to draw here, Andrew, between uh, ethics and the law uh, and, and what seems to be going on here and legal implications on this. I mean, this is a union that did the investigation, uh, but they're talking about legal advice. Uh, are there legal implications to this, or is this just an in-house situation? Well, there can be both. Um you know, the, the union has a constitution. Uh, it's perfectly entitled, like any other employer or like any other organization, to conduct its own internal review to see if their um, internal laws, uh, their internal constitution has been breached. Uh, just like if a, a company uh, deems that an individual uh, at work has been stealing from work or is alleged to be stealing from work, uh, they can do their own investigation. It doesn't supplant necessarily a police investigation, which is the other layer to this, which is also on the table. Uh, the police can go in and, and investigate if they choose. And, and the fact that a, a workplace or an organization has done its own investigation doesn't preclude the police from doing one themselves to see if the criminal law has been breached. So they're certainly entitled to do it. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the road here. Uh, but they can and should do their own internal investigation to see if their own laws have been breached. I just want to remind our listeners, too, these are allegations, of course. Uh, nothing's been proven in court here, uh, and the investigations are ongoing. But certainly Mr. Dice has responded to this by, uh, first of all, resigning his position and, and then uh, articulating, I guess, I don't know if the excuses, but some rationale and some things that have been impacting him right now. Uh, but you mentioned about the, the, the police coming in. I mean, this is public information now that... that the allegation that is that this fifty thousand dollars change hands, uh, but the implication we have so far, Andrew, is that it's because we've all seen these stories about somebody dipping into the you know the, the kitty and, and taking money out from pension funds and things like that. This was not uniform money, or so we're told. This stage anyway, uh, this came from this company, uh, which I, I again I don't want to speculate too much here. It was probably to try to influence the decision about whether or not to buy their product. Is is that a breach of ethics or a breach of law or both? Both. Uh, there's, a, there's a criminal code. There's a criminal offense called secret commissions. It's right on point. And okay. what secret commissions is, is um, if, uh, uh, if somebody uh, in a position of authority, like an agent for a company or an organization, um, accepts or demands uh, a secret commission, when they should disclose it, that's a criminal offense. And it does, it's, not just a, it's not just for unions. It could be for a corporation as well. Um, you could imagine a situation in a corporation where a CEO or president of a company um, uh, does, is alleged to have done the same thing as Mr. Dias here um, when they'd have a duty to their shareholders um, uh, or to other individuals in the company uh, to report the disclosure of, of a, of a $50,000 payment changing hands in order for one vendor to be preferred over another. So there absolutely is a criminal offense that would apply here if the police want to go down that road. It's the police's choice as to whether they want to investigate or not. That is in addition to the internal um, union constitution and union laws uh, that uh, the union has already clearly made an investigation on um, and has announced that they found um, to their satisfaction that something has happened and, and, and they went public with that. So there is a criminal code offense that works here uh, if, it's, if it's something that the police wish to investigate. Uh, and there is absolutely a, a, a union issue, if I can put it that way, that would sort of fit into what, what you've called the ethical part of this. Uh, but it's their internal laws, it's their internal constitution, uh, and they've taken action on it. Is a possible police investigation on this uh, predicated on, on what the union wants? In other words, can those go on a parallel pass? The union could say, well, we don't want to pursue this from a legal standpoint, but, but, but might the police want to do that anyway? Yeah, so hypothetically. I mean, yeah, re re realistically, um, complainants can't dictate 
whether the police investigator lay a charge or not legally, right? The, the police can investigate something even if a complainant doesn't want them to. In the realities of the system, though, the police will often take that into account. And so if the union calls up, uh, you know, the, the, the OPP uh, and says, we have evidence here that, that a secret commission has taken place, we'd like the police to come in and investigate it realistically, they would come in and do it. If the police want to investigate this themselves, uh, they can uh, inform the union that they have grounds to believe that that an offense may have been committed, and they can come in and investigate. And it's really in the police's interest to work with the union in that stage, because the union's likely collected a great deal of evidence. And, uh, And they're going to want to have access to that evidence uh, to see if there's a charge there or not. So this could still happen. And again, like I say, in the the absence of all the information here, uh, we are speculating to a certain point. But I'm I'm glad that we had that clarified, that there are some points of law that need to be addressed. And, and, you know, I mean, public officials, especially elected public officials, whether it's public office and government or or in this particular case, a, a union hierarchy, I, I guess my experience tells me, Andrew, they're always going to be lobbying efforts there. You know, hey, you know, get this product, get that product. I mean, that's what salespeople do. Uh, you know, you, you go to company A and say, look, I got a great product. I'm going to use that instead of that other guy down there. So that's that's all above board. But I guess this is really a matter of transparency. And from what you're telling me, uh, you know, if, if all of a sudden, uh, you know, the brown envelope is part of the, the pitch, that's crossing the line. Yeah, I think you've hit on it there, Bill. I mean, if, if we want to boil it down and be crude about it it's it really it's about and we can be here it's about the money changing hands it's about fifty thousand dollars allegedly being delivered to mr dice and then him not disclosing that and then him pushing that vendor uh uh to to other unions and to other uh employers that that's the crux of it if um if there was no money changing hands if this vendor simply pushed uh, uh, for their product to be the one that was sort of uniform approved and they went through the normal channels and lobbied him personally um, and convinced them that they were a good product, that's fine. Uh, th- that happens every day in business. And, and oftentimes that's why you see regulation around the tender process, right? They, they, they want to minimize opportunities for this sort of often corporations or organizations like unions want to minimize opportunities where uh, the lobbying can cross the line. So you create like a tender process where you ask companies to come in and bid and, and, and give them the opportunity to show why their product is the appropriate one for the situation, um, as opposed to what's alleged to have happened here, where there's that one-on-one lobbying and then there's the money that crosses the line. Um, and, and, you know, if it's disclosed, you might be outside the ambit of the criminal law anyway. If, if Mr. Dias said they've just offered me $50,000 and, you know, here we go, here's their product, they've offered that to me personally or I've accepted it personally and, and uh, they want to be the company that does this. I mean, at that point, you'd still have an ethical breach in accepting the money, but it wouldn't be secret anymore. It would be transparent. Um, so, so... Really, there, there's these two parallel tracks, and the key part for both of them is the money changed hands and nobody knew about it uh, until it seems a whistleblower uh, came forward. Yeah, that's the, the, the version of the story that we've heard anyway, that apparently he tried to share some of that money. And the, the person who he contacted to do that with is the one that uh, blew the whistle on this whole thing. But where's that line, Andrew, when, when you get into this? Because like you say, there's always already existing this business of, of people being lobbied to, to you know use my business as of those would you know i mean if i call you after the interview today and say look andrew you know i've got this uh, office supply company uh i'd really like you to to you know use my company here here are a couple of tickets to the blue jay home opener this year I, and that's not fifty thousand dollars i get that but is there is there a line here that you cross is it an amount of money is it the the, the enormity of the gift where do you look here to, to try to make that determination it's in the transparency and in the duties that you have to the organization. The secret commission works against an agent for a company or an organization or a government. I'm a, you know, I run my own firm. I own my own business, so to speak. 
I am the one uh, decision maker for my firm. Uh, so if you called me up and said, I'd like you to start using my office supply company, Andrew, here's a pair of tickets to the Jays game. I don't have anybody else uh, that, that my business uh, sort of is about. Uh, there's nobody above me. There's nobody I have a duty to. I have a duty to me. That's, that's part of the benefits of being in business for yourself. If, however, I was uh, the CEO of, uh, an, uh, of a large corporation and the same thing happened, and all of a sudden I, I went to the shareholders and said, I really think we should use Bill's office supply company, but I never disclosed that you were now giving me season's tickets to the Jays game to the Jays for, for, for this year, um, then you've crossed the line. It's who do I owe a duty to? Am I an agent for those people? And am I disclosing what I'm getting? And the enormity of it, the size of the gift, works in sort of the practicalities and the realities of the situation. By law, it makes no difference. It makes no difference if you give me a dollar or if you give me $150 million. That doesn't matter by law. But it matters in terms of how seriously people take it in the real world. And I, I think oftentimes there's generally, you know, considered little things that might happen here and there, gifts that might happen here and there that people know in, in their ordinary life that you're not going to get into too big of a fuss about. But there's oftentimes a sense of, you know, when something gets too big in the realities of it, um, that it becomes inappropriate. And... Um, here, that would seem that the union clearly felt that this, a $50,000 cash payout to their president, clearly crossed that line. Do they get upset if the guy, if, if the test kit company gives them a pair of tickets to the Jays game? I don't think so. I think you would see it be viewed as a breach, perhaps, but not one that would explode publicly like this. But I reiterate, by law, by the criminal law, the size doesn't matter. It's the context and it's who you owe the duty to. Uh, and again, there's another side of the story too that uh, that we're all aware of now. Uh, Mr. Dias resigning uh, and checking himself into a rehab facility. And, uh, you know, on a personal level, he's obviously dealing with some demons here and we, we wish him the best. Uh, but the, t the two can be tied here. I mean, because he did say when he issued his public statement about checking into this facility, uh, that he'd been basically dealing with chronic pain. I think it was a sciatic problem for some time and was essentially over, you know, reliant on, on painkillers. Uh, I think he talked about alcohol and, and a number of other things like this, which he said clouded his judgment, which sounds to me like that's very much going to be part of if, in fact, charges go forward. And again, we don't know that's going to happen. Uh, that, is that a legitimate, not excuse, but is that a legitimate defense to say, look, at a, I, I, was outside my, my my mind. I was, you know, I was being, you know, manipulated by what the demons in me and 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 the impact of the, uh, the the stuff that I was taking. No, it doesn't work as a legal defense in this sort of a case. Um, where where it would work would be if there were charges and he was found guilty. Um, it would absolutely work in mitigation of sentence, but in terms of a legal defense. Um, being under the influence of an addiction um, will not mean that you have a defense to whether you're guilty of the charge or not by law. Um, it, it would mean that um, if you're found guilty, you've got something to say in mitigation. And I mean, you know, th this, is, this is a man who has a sterling record as a public servant otherwise. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he was he was named to a, a, a pretty important trade delegation by the premier. Um, he's the head of, I don't, I, I don't know if it's the largest, but certainly one of the largest unions in the country and, and one of the most publicly visible unions in the country. You, you don't get there without a, a sterling and, and strong public record. And the, the addiction issues that he's dealing with, I think for all, I, I've seen it in my capacity as a defense lawyer, um, at least anecdotally, I've seen that has increased for a lot of people in the pandemic. Um, I think that's a human side that needs to be remembered here. Um, and it, it could certainly be a reason why people step outside of, of their, their past and their record and, and do things as reckless as was what appeared to have happened here. Like this is, this is the allegations here 
are 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 reckless to an extreme degree for somebody with his uh, level of profile and his level of accomplishment. Like it's the most basic, naked, reckless sort of of bribe you could take if this is true. And I, I think it's absolutely the sort of thing that would cause a judge if he was charged and found guilty. And I'm not saying he will be charged even, but if he was. It's the sort of thing that could help mitigate the sentence because my sense is that's not who this man is, but it doesn't work as a defense. And as you say, I'm sure you've seen this in your line of work, and and heaven knows we've done enough programs over the years about opioid addictions, uh, which is still a a rampant problem here in the province of Ontario. Uh, And this is how this starts. You know, the people have to, maybe that's one of the takeaways, I guess, from this whole story, Andrew. You know, many of the people that are hooked on on these things, are, are professionals, you know, they're, they're, they're lawyers, they're doctors, they're union presidents in situations like this. Uh, but you get dependent on something like this and, and it's, it's hard to turn it off in situations like that, which is, Hey, I, I, I hope he gets the help that he needs in a situation like that and, and, and recovers from this. But, uh, it's a, a stark reminder, I guess, of, of what addictions can do and how easily we can fall into that path. If we, and as you mentioned, especially after COVID, a lot of us, uh, might be even a little closer to that than we would feel comfortable with, but uh, it's a it's a wake up call, isn't it? Yeah, and and it just goes to show it's it's yet another reminder that that these addictions can hit anybody at any time in any part of their lives, and it's a reminder that that for a lot of people these are these are addictions and dependencies that begin in in the most sort of um, benign way possible. If somebody gets hurt and they go to their doctor. And they get a prescription and it goes from there. And these are powerful drugs. They're powerfully addictive for people. They're very difficult to wean off of. Uh, and uh, they affect anyone at any time, anywhere. And it's just a good reminder for people to keep an eye out for family members who maybe prescribe these drugs um, or who they know may have had these drugs in the past to to keep an eye out for the signs uh, of somebody not acting as themselves uh, and and potentially still under the grip of these drugs. You know, these are, these are very different circumstances, I think, than the classic sort of seventies, eighties view of an addict. That's, that's long since should long since be in our rear view. Um, Addiction comes in a lot of different forms uh, in a lot of different ways, and it can come about through the most law-abiding start by somebody going to their doctor saying, man, I'm in pain, I need some help, and and the addiction kicking off that way. So it, it, I really hope that, that Mr. Dias, like, that should be his primary concern right now. I mean, these issues, he's resigned his position. The legal issues will come and go for him. And like I tell my clients who are dealing, if I have a client dealing with an addiction issue, their primary, the primary thing for them is to get better. We can deal with the law. The law, it's a chapter in their lives that can be closed uh, and that can be remedied and that they can move past. Um, but the addiction is something that unless you get that sorted first, you're not going to be able to close, to, to turn that page and to close that chapter. So that's his first First goal and first priority right now. Absolutely. Andrew, as always, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Bill. Talk to you soon. Betcha. Andrew Fujielli, of course, who was a lecturer at uh, defense lawyer. He's then in the faculty of law at uh, the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.